It's the bottom line. On News Radio 610, KONA. From the Tri Cities to Olympia to DC, we break down. The stories of the day and the people making the news. And that's the bottom line. Time to get the bottom line. Presented by McCary Meats in Basin City with your hosts, Rob Francis and Ed Dawson. Now the first Democratic nominee debate is over. We'll discuss the winners and losers while setting the stage for night two. The Supreme Court hands down a couple of interesting long-awaited decisions. And guess who is again center stage at the high court? And the border funding bill passes in the House after the Speaker does something we rarely see. But first, give us your bottom line. It's your voice, your show. Call the LegendsCasino.com hotline, 509-547-1610. Welcome into the bottom line, News Radio 610 KONA. 5471610 if you would like to get involved in the program. Rob Francis here, Ed Dawson, taking some time off. Joining me in studio this afternoon, our good friend from the Washington Policy Center, Jason Mercier. Good afternoon to you, sir. As always, a pleasure to have you in. It's great to be here, Rob. So let's uh <laughs> Let's start at the beginning, why don't we? Um, A couple days ago, the revenue forecast was released. $432 million more is expected to be added to the state budget over the course of this budgetary cycle as a result of all of the new taxes that were added in this previous session. Normally, when we have seen revenue forecast increases, it's based on lower projections. This is the first one I can remember in a couple of years to where it's directly tied to the umpteen thousand tax increases that we saw. Um, Talk to us a little bit about the revenue forecast update and how much of an impact we're we're getting or are we going to see with these taxes in certain areas of the state. Yeah, if you had just put on the TV or the radio or read the paper and saw that $400 million increase in revenue, you might have gotten pretty excited thinking, okay, we're, we're going to be able to have a chance for some tax cuts here. Uh, it's a good, healthy increase to the budget reserve. But that caveat that you mentioned, that increase was driven by the fact the legislature raised so many taxes. And the way this works, the revenue forecast is quarterly. So the last time this council got together and adopted the forecast, the legislature had not yet enacted those taxes. So they did their projections based upon just the economic growth. But the legislature decided to do all those tax increases, so that's why they now account for this going forward. I think if you were to dig deeper into it, that $400 million you don't want to get hung up on, again, because it was coming on the tax increases, but it was the fact that the dreaded recession, the economic softening everybody's worried about, It hasn't hit the state yet, and that's good news. Things are still kind of just plodding along, but we do still see those warning signs. When you compare this first quarter over the last quarter of last year, we did actually see our exports decline. They still see some of those caution flags on the tariffs, and we just keep getting the warnings that the good times won't last forever. We're just not sure how long they will, and you need to be a little prudent. You know, one of the other things, too, Jason, that I think – no one is talking about as far as the the state's economy and and the potential softening of it are the things that have been done to businesses and i'm one of those people that believes that amazon looking for two additional quote world headquarters 
is a signal that Amazon is planning on following Boeing's lead and moving their operations more and more out of the state of Washington because of the non-business friendly environment that's been created. Um, Is there anybody pointing to business relocation as a potential softening of the state's economy? Well, that's going to be the thing to look for in the future forecast. Because, again, these taxes haven't taken effect yet. Some of them will take effect in July, and some will take effect down the road. And just this past week, the uh, Tri-City Chamber had their monthly luncheon, and they had the head of the state's real estate or um, – <clears throat> Yeah, not real estate, but the uh, Retail Sales Association was here and pointing out the fact that primarily for Clark County, a little bit for Spokane and for us, that non-resident sales tax exemption change, you may not see some of those sales come in now. So do you actually see that sales tax revenue generated that the state thought they were going to get by closing that exemption? Do you see lower B&O taxes because of that? Because now you're not having as much commerce. So we're, we're going to Going forward in those forecasts, we're going to start to see the impact that not only the non-resident sales tax exemption, but the big B&O surcharge that they impose, does that impact state revenues? Well, and the interesting thing, you bring up the, the non-revenue sales tax, that exemption being closed, we've seen um, numerous examples whenever the state passes some type of, whether it's an initiative or a law, that has an impact on the border communities, it tends to favor Oregon and Idaho more than it does Washington. You know, we go back to the to the Costco initiative, basically, we call it that, where they, they privatized alcohol sales. Huge boon for border towns in Oregon and Idaho as people from here were leaving there. There were some, if I remember, border communities in Oregon showing a 40% increase in alcohol sales uh, because it was for them it was worth the gas money to drive down to buy the alcohol. Um, I think your your monthly shoppers aren't going to come here anymore. I think your business owners that come up once a week to go to Costco and cash and carry and businesses like that, they're still going to come, but they're going to hang on to their receipts and they're going to they're going to do the tedious paperwork in order to get their money back, but we're going to lose a lot of occasional shoppers that are coming in from from Oregon and Idaho. Well, the, the dry cities probably is going to be a little bit better off than some of these other communities just because, if, you know, there's not a whole lot of shopping in Pendleton and some right. of these other areas. But if, if you're in Spokane and you have some other options outside of that, but primarily Vancouver, Longview, a lot of people do come over because they save on that sales tax. And now if they're going to have to pay that or keep their receipts for a full year in hopes of doing that rebate back from the state of Washington, that's where the concern is. And the, the funny thing about Now, it's not funny, but as I was reviewing the request the governor got, I did a records request to the governor about the request to veto that. And a lot of Oregonians actually were writing the governor and saying, if this happens, I'm not coming to Washington anymore. It's a little bit strange seeing a non-state resident asking our governor to take action on a bill. But these are the people that this was supposed to entice to come over. And they're basically saying, we're not going to do it anymore. Yeah. And once again, falls on deaf ears. Now, maybe if it was a service union that wrote to him, he, he might have listened. But. Well, but on that fact, several unions did write the governor about the Snake River Dam study and said, you know, this is a job killer. Don't do this. And, and they didn't listen to them either. Well, it's <laughs> no, because it's the dams. It's going to save the orcas. You know, we've got to tear them down. Um, <clears throat> I want to ask you, because, I mean, it directly affects what we're talking about tax-wise. 
And there's been a lot of discussion and, and a lot of interest in Initiative 1648, um, where it will basically provide a one-year sunset on any taxes that have been passed by the legislature without voter approval. So everything that was done in this session, if this initiative hits the ballot and is approved in November, will in 2020 force the lawmakers to revisit these taxes again because they will effectively be sunset. Does this create a problem the way it's written with the biennial budgeting cycle in Washington State? Or is this something that, because we know that they also address certain budgetary issues in the short session. Um, Boom McCleary, for example, was done in, in a short session, if I remember correctly. Um, or, or will this be something that won't impede the legislature in being able to revisit these taxes? From a policy perspective, having that one-year sunset, because we are not only a biennial budget, but we have the four-year balanced budget requirement, that that would pose some serious challenges about how do you, if you want to increase spending and you need to raise taxes to do so, how do you not only account for that in the two-year but for the four-year? Now, this is a problem for wanting to increase spending above your existing revenue forecast. And for some people, you may say, well, that's not a problem. Just don't raise the taxes. But from a just a, a strictly budget framework, it, it would be problematic. Now, there are some other questions in the initiative about, you know, not only does it have that one-year sunset, but it would attempt to retroactively repeal all the taxes that were raised this year. But because this was written in January, the sponsor didn't know what taxes were going to be increased. So right. they don't get laid out. They just say any tax you raise gets repealed. There's some issues about whether or not the courts will allow you to do that because you usually have to lay, lay out in full what it is that you're repealing. So there's, there's some issues about what a court would do if this were to pass. But the bottom line is, you know, we're going, to going, going into an election year next year. If you see the voters not only qualify this initiative, but then pass this initiative, notwithstanding some of the, the policy difficulties and, and the legal questions, it does send a message that, the, the state did not like the direction this past session took on tax policy. Now, we'll, we'll know probably in a couple of weeks if enough of those signatures have been submitted. And there's a couple of other ballot measures that, that may be happening. But right now, it sounds like a pretty quiet ballot. We're talking with Jason Mercier with the Washington Policy Center here on the bottom line. He's Radio 610 KNA. We'll take a quick time out, come back and talk more with Jason, including getting his thoughts on... Well, one of Governor Inslee's statements from last night's pre-pre-pre-debate interviews. More of the bottom line next. Can't get in by phone? Give us your bottom line through email. Send your thoughts from the bottom lines page at 610kona.com. Back to the bottom line. Presented by McCary Neats in Basin City. Back at the bottom line, News Radio 610kona. Talking with Jason Mercier with the Washington Policy Center. Rob Francis here at Dawson. Back on Monday. So, Jason, you're well aware that last night was round one of the Democratic debates, and our very own ungovernor Inslee was a part of that initial dais. I want to play for you a because I think he got more pre-debate interview time than he actually had on the stage in, in, in the ability to answer questions. This was a question posed to him in, I guess you would call it the green room before the debate. Uh, 
asking him about his positions and uh, and other things. So I want you to I want you to listen to this. Well, listen, everybody's going to have a full shot, but I think I can say that uh, I have had progressive achievements that are unparalleled. Uh, I'm the only candidate with the highest minimum wage in the state, in the nation. I am the only candidate in America who's actually passed a public health option, which we need. I am the only candidate and the first candidate to pass a statute which makes net uh, metering, or excuse me, net neutrality the law of the state of Washington. I am the candidate who has made sure that our hardworking educators, our teachers, have get the highest wage compensation increase in the United States. I'm the candidate with the best gender pay equity laws because we're kind of radical in Washington. We think women should make the same as men. So I have a suite of progressive achievements which have also achieved the state with the fastest GDP growth, the fastest wage growth, We've been named the best place to do business and the best place to work. And that's because of our progressive policies. And I'm happy to, to, to talk about those policies tonight. You're looking a little ill. <laughs> First, he didn't pass anything. Okay, he didn't pass a stinking thing. He's not part of the legislature. He didn't pass anything. Well, you know, the, the governor is obviously trying to make his case on, on why he should be the president. And, and sometimes that means that it, not accounting for the legislative branch of government that, that does a lot of these things <laughs> or the fact the minimum wage was passed via the ballot box. Right. And not from the legislature. But the, I think the one that I'm most curious about was the, the teacher pay one, because uh-huh. that is something that happened through the individual school district contracts and we saw those prolonged teacher strikes last year and we didn't hear anything from the governor during those teacher strikes or during those those contracts so i it's interesting that that would be the one that he would highlight of having been instrumental in achieving well considering that it was a lawsuit that was brought against the state decided by the state supreme court sent back to the legislature who took a few years to get around finding a way to fix it then they find a way to fix it a lot all this money and the governor sits there with a pen and goes okay after everybody else has done all the heavy lifting and he takes credit for it I want to come back to the the teacher talks, and because there's some new developments not only locally here in Kennewick, but also in Spokane on Absolutely. teacher talks. But this is an interesting uh, segue to what is happening in the state of Washington right now as far as the 2020 ballot for statewide races. Because you, you have a whole bunch of legislative candidates and a whole bunch of folks who are wanting to move up into office, want to be the lands commissioner, want to be attorney general, want to be the next governor. But nobody wants to run against uh, one of their fellow Democratic incumbents right now. So you have this kind of unofficial, conditional primary all waiting to see if the governor is going to run for a third term. Right. And even if he's running for president, he can still do that. But he hasn't announced one way or another. So at some point here later this year, he's going to need to make a decision so all of these other Democrats can decide, am I officially going to enter this race? And you've seen some senators, some House members who are wanting to move up. You've got a lot of people not only at the Seattle county level, but at the attorney general who are saying, well, maybe they want to run for governor. So it's going to be interesting to see how long everybody politely waits on the sidelines for the governor to make his decision. You know, one of the things that I think is is interesting in um, the governor's position here and some of the things that he discussed that he accomplished is – his biggest point 
And the one thing he could do as president is the dams. And not once, not once did he bring up the one issue that he keeps hammering on. We need a $750,000 study for this. We need a study for this. We need to tear down the Snake River dams. The federal government has the ability to weigh in on those. And nothing so far with him running for president has made any mention to appeal to that base regarding the dams. I'm, I'm surprised. Well, maybe that's a topic to save for the 10 seconds of the next debate. <laughs> he got what? Now, they said he got five minutes of FaceTime. I don't know if that was five minutes of actual speaking because he was kind of like horse shack in the back of, in front of Mr. Cotter's class. He had his hand up when he wanted to talk instead of the, the, the rough and tumble that everyone else was doing, jumping over each other and stepping all over each other. He was standing there on the far corner waving his hand up. He's hi, can I talk now? So, you know, when, when a, a governor or a senator from a state runs, it's an opportunity to tell that state story. Yes. And, and the governor is, is telling the story from his perspective on that. But one of the things that he does highlight all the time is, how we consistently rank well in business studies and in economic studies. And it's interesting because part of that reason is the state's tax structure. But that's something he's trying to change. So on the one hand, you've got him out there saying, you know, Washington's got the story to tell. Look how great we're doing on all of these things. But, oh, by the way, I'm trying to change the framework that makes that possible by bringing an income tax, by bringing a a carbon tax by bringing these other taxes. So there's a little bit of a disconnect on that. And that's one of the things, Jason, we're talking with Jason Mercier with the Washington Policy Center here on the bottom line. It's one of the things that's mystified me about the growth in the state is all of these other taxes. Okay, And, and granted, the jury's out on, on the one, one point increases uh, on, on B&O on two different fronts. But we the, the fact that we don't have a state income tax has seemed to outweigh the tax increases that we have seen and has still allowed businesses to look at Washington State as being attractive. We saw a little bit of a kickback when Seattle tried to do the head tax. You know, Amazon, Starbucks, a number of other businesses, Google, located in in Seattle, that was your big pushback there. And they backed down eventually because of, of you know, that kick, that pushback. But is it really just no state income tax as to why we have been able to enjoy these last few years of growth? Well, let's look at the what the Department of Commerce says. Now, it's just not the income tax, but what Commerce will go out there and, and tell businesses is, yes, the no income tax, no corporate or personal, so you're going to be at that advantage. But they also highlight this other thing that we are constantly <laughs> hearing some officials attack, and that is the various tax preferences that the business community can apply for. So we seem to be talking out of both sides of our mouth as far as why Washington is doing well. Say, you know, we're doing great, but we have a horrible tax structure. But, oh, by the way, we advertise that tax structure is why you should come do business here. It's like, which which one is it? What do you want? Well, and the other thing I thought was interesting was, what was it, yesterday or the day before, the governor announced $5.8 million worth of grants to help low-income families. You want to help low-income families? Stop raising taxes. That's really the best way you can help low-income families. Stop raising taxes. Stop hitting them at the gas pump. Stop hitting them in every other avenue that you call a regressive tax that those are the ones you continue to raise on a regular basis. 
We're going to take a quick time out. Bottom line, News Radio 610 KOA. Come back with more with Jason Mercier because he alluded to those discussions between the teachers' unions and the districts, one in Kennewick, one in Spokane. We're going to talk about that as well. And maybe, maybe the words public and disclosure may come into the conversation as well. Back with more of the bottom line after this. Now back to the bottom line, presented by McCary Meets in Basin City. It's your voice, your show. Call the LegendsCasino.com hotline, 509-547-1610. Back in the bottom line, is Radio 610-KONA. Happy Thursday afternoon. Rob Francis flying solo at Dawson back on Monday. Well, I shouldn't say flying solo. I would be not doing the justice to my guest that he deserves. Our good friend from the Washington Policy Center, Jason Mercier, hanging out. I'm sitting here in the gunner seat. You know, give me some. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jason, one of the things that came out of the McCleary decision, of course, was hefty increases um, sent to the school districts to try and offset the imbalances that were determined to be existent in the public school system in Washington State. There were haves, there were have-nots. We saw Pasco School District, Richland School District. We saw a number of the school districts. uh, Their teachers get significant raises where the WEA stepped in and basically took the overwhelming majority of that money that was supposed to be kind of rationed over a period of time, just all gone in like one bargaining session. Now we've got the Kennewick School District. And the KEA involved in talks, um, they're not happy because they think they're not getting as much as their Pasco and Richland counterparts, even though, was it last year they got an 8% raise? I'm not sure about the Kennewick, but the Richland or, and Pasco. Or they're, they're yeah, looking... They're opening their they're, contract up now. They're looking for an 8% raise to, when to you, match. When, when you saw the headline in the, the paper today, you, your first thought was, oh, here's just going to be another story about... Discord and a strike coming. When you actually read it, there's some interesting news about what is happening in the Kennewick School District and things that you'd like to see move statewide. And that has to do with the fact that apparently last month the Kennewick School Board adopted a contract transparency resolution that not only says they want to honor the spirit of the Public Open Meetings Act, have recognized the fact that secrecy is not a great way to do this because it can breed some of that mistrust and a little bit of the disagreement in what the actual facts on the ground are. So not only going forward now will they be posting the offers and the counter offers so everybody can see clearly for themselves what the issues are, who is offering what, and where the disagreement lies. But the resolution also provides for the opportunity for public talks, although it leaves that contingent on agreement from the union. Now, this follows something that you're actually seeing in other municipalities. And, in fact, this fall, voters in Spokane will have the opportunity to basically – Spokane is a charter city, so they kind of have a a city constitution. They're going to have a chance to amend their constitution for all of their talks to be done in open meetings. You know, it's interesting because when you talk about school districts and the funding that the school districts get, it is more out of the state budget than any other entity. All the talks are private, and 
the amount of input that the public has is arguably less than with anything else that's publicly funded. So you take all those things into combination because, you know, this is what we hear over and over again. You know, we don't, we, we, we don't see a lot being done with those teachers that aren't performing. We see kids getting pushed forward. Maybe that shouldn't be getting pushed forward. We have arguments over what exactly are we getting for the amount of tax dollars we're putting into the system. And every time we come back, we hear we need more, we need more, we need more, which is what led to the local levy lift in this past decision, which, again, comes back to your school board races. Be careful who you elect. They may raise your local levy for operational costs. That's what got McCleary in trouble the first time around. So as we see this moving forward and we see what's happening in Kennewick and we see this attempt to move to more of a public disclosure, we, it never gets past the starting blocks with the governor. It never get past, gets past the starting blocks with the state legislature. But isn't this something with the, with the fact that over 50% of the state budget is tied up in public education? Isn't it about time the public was able to have a door open to see exactly what goes on with these talks, the tactics that are used? You know, seven school districts threatened to go on strike last year. Seven threatened to go on strike last year. It's about time that we have a door that's at least open to crack so that the public can see exactly what's going on here. Well, this is where with what Kennewick's school board has adopted, the, the posting of the offers and the counter offers that at least takes the mystery out of it. Right. Now, now no longer it's a matter of, well, they're being disrespectful or you can't believe them. That's not what they're really offering. You can just see f- for yourself. This is what each side is asking for. There's where the disagreement lies. If you bring in some fiscal scoring, now you can actually see about the sustainability of the proposals. So that, at a minimum, is just something that everybody should be doing. That should not be controversial. You'd like to see that next step be taken that Spokane is going to be voting on. You've seen Lincoln County do, yep. other schools do, where the public can actually attend these talks so that they can see, well, you know, I can see the documents, but are things happening to where there is some type of either disrespect being exchanged or other type of games being played that you wouldn't necessarily just see in a document? So it's good that they're posting the documents. It's good that they provide the opportunity for that. But you'd like to just see it become standard operating procedure. And the example of this, you talked about what the legislature. Why did you have basically that total breakdown in the last two days of session because it was done in secret Mm -hmm. so if those were done more above board you may not have seen some of that bad product come out of it and that's basically what you're talking about public dollars tax dollars and the accountability can't be there if the people who are providing the funding aren't part of the conversation now just one quick question on that the title only debacles that usually tend to be tax bills passed at two o'clock in the morning would it have to be the legislature that ends that, or is there something within the initiative process that could put a constraint on title-only bills, much like they're trying to do with 1648 and the taxes that were passed? So when it comes to local governments, for the school districts, the counties, the cities, that we can do via initiative as far as open talks and making sure you have a strong public meetings. For the legislature, it becomes questionable because the Constitution allows the legislature to set its own rules. So 
You could try to pass an initiative saying you can't do time-only bills anymore. You have to have 24-hour notice before votes. You have to have strong public meetings. But if a lawmaker wanted to sue, then there's a good chance they might win. If the legislature imposes it on itself, however, there's no legal controversy. And that's why in 2013 a bill was introduced that only would ban title-only bills. It would provide at least three-day notice of public hearings. They couldn't hold a hearing on a different bill than they've advertised. You know, sometimes they'll do that with a substitute or a striker. That bill, you'll be shocked, did not get a public hearing. But we have heard enough outrage from this past session that multiple lawmakers of both parties have said they want to bring it back. Now, will their leadership allow it to come to a vote? That remains to be seen. But, you know, it's an election year next year. That might add added pressure to move this forward. Cross our fingers, hope. But we know the way things are constructed right now and the way that they moved the majority of those tax bills forward in the dead of night with title-only bills. Don't see anything changing anytime soon. There would need to be a rebalance somewhere. And, um, you know, some of the some of the lawmakers I've talked to think that they've got a chance at picking up some seats in 2020 as a result of what just happened in this past session. I guess we'll wait and see as, as far as that turns out. But talk to me a little bit about Senator Das. You know, usually when summer rolls around, things get very quiet in the legislature. That is not the case. Um, (laughs) So Senator Doss is a freshman senator out of the Kent area, and she spoke at the Kirkland Chamber of Commerce. And usually these presentations from elected officials are fairly non-controversial. But apparently during this luncheon, she made the comments that her caucus, which is the Democratic caucus, She experienced harassment, sexism, racism, and, you know, she wasn't directing this to the Senate. She said this was her own caucus. And as you can imagine, a reporter attending this luncheon wrote up these comments. Uh, When they came out, uh, the senator said that she had been misquoted. That wasn't what she said. But the Kirkland chamber actually videotaped the luncheon, posted the video, and it was, in fact, what she said. So out of this, the Associated Press ran an article, and as you can imagine, people went to the Senate Majority Leader, Senator Billig, and he said that he's had a couple of conversations with Senator Doss. They're going to have some, uh, not sensitive training, but some type of training over the summer. Of course, there's always training involved. You know, know, after the (laughs) AP story broke, she she said, well, I I, I wasn't meaning there was overt racism or sexism. You know, it's just kind of implied. It it wasn't just with my caucus. It's with the Senate as an institution. But now that those comments have been made, especially in this uh, climate where you, you're seeing a lot of attention provided to has- harassment accusations, the Senate's Human Resource Division is actually contacted to start opening up an investigation. So you're going to have to keep an eye on what develops here going forward out of just this very simple Kirkland Chamber luncheon. Now comes an investigation and, and training for the rest of the Senate. You know, and, and this is Andy Billig's first. Uh, the last year was this year was his first year as the majority leader in the Senate, correct? That's correct. Boy, welcome to the welcome to the show, Andy. Enjoy your leadership position. Well, I'm, you know the House, the Senate's not having all the fun now, not from accusations of this type of behavior, but the the, the House right now has an interim speaker. This Frank Chop is, you know, he's still in the legislature, but he stepped down as speaker when session ended. So right now you have Speaker. Um, Lovick, but he is not planning to go for the full speakership. So you have four House members, uh, four women who are wanting to run to become speaker, and they will, that caucus will vote next month, and we're going to have a new speaker of the House. 
So you, you're going to have a whole new dynamic in the House. We'll have to see what comes out of the Senate one. Now, something we, we are waiting to see what happens is when the governor vetoed portions of the transportation budget, he arguably issued an unconstitutional veto. And lawmakers from both parties complained about this, and there's been discussion of whether or not the legislature is actually going to sue the governor for these vetoes. This is kind of hinging, I think, on what happens with that speaker race. So after there's a new speaker, we'll have a better feel for whether or not the legislature is going to sue the governor. Is there any sense that CHOP made this decision? Because as, as we've seen at the national level, Nancy Pelosi is getting absolutely just hounded on a regular basis by the the far left wing of the Democratic Party that now has a, a little bit more of a presence than it did before. Was there anything floating around that, that that's why Chop stepped back is he didn't want to deal with that, that the changes, look, we know why Brad Owen walked away, all right? We, we, we saw exactly why Brad Owen walked away. The change in climate in Olympia had a lot to do with him deciding it's time for me to retire this is not what I got into the legislature for. I've heard that comment from a couple of, of people who are longtime lawmakers. Is CHOP just, while staying in the legislature, not wanting to have that position anymore, part of not wanting to deal with this new wave and not wanting to fight it and let somebody else take over? I haven't heard anything along those lines for the reasons. I mean, he, you know, he did, for the first time, pass a bill last session. It may be a matter of just wanting to focus on his individual district priorities and not trying to manage the caucus's priorities. Because one of the things that he was very good at, the reason why they've been in the majority for so long, is having an eye on future elections, kind of limiting what comes to the floor based on that. So with him stepping down and new speakers coming in, does that discipline then get broken? You know, it's an election year, which usually means you don't have controversial things come to the floor. But CHOP's not going to be the guiding force there anymore. So what does that look like for next session on taxes, on the cap-and-trade proposals? We do, you know, along with what Senator Das has said, she's a freshman senator, there's a lot of freshmen. And a couple of these freshmen more on the Senate side have given interviews thinking that they believe the caucus is a little bit too tepid, they, they're not progressive enough. So uh, you do see, you know, that it's a very diverse legislature with a lot of different directions that people want to take it to. And it, it could make for a very interesting session. Well, we did see as well, Jason, as we take our final time out here, hour number one, we did see Speaker Chop put the brakes on some bills that were favored by the progressive end of the caucus. So, uh, you know, he, he put his foot down a couple times, maybe knowing this was going to be his last stand, and said, nah, I don't agree with these. They're not going to work. Back to wrap up with Jason Mercier after this. Hook up with the bottom line on Twitter at bottom line 610. Now back to the show presented by McCary meets in Basin City. Bottom line news radio 610 K when I found a few minutes. Hour number one talking with Jason Mercier with the Washington Policy Center. Rob Francis here at Dawson back on Monday. So Jason, um, our good friend from the 9th Legislative District, Senator Mark Schessler, teamed up with our former Attorney General, Rob McKenna, recently and uh, decided to explain as eloquently as they could to, to voters around the state what exactly has been done by the state legislature to bypass their opinions and bypass their input when it came to 
not just these recent tax increases, but probably the increases that have gone in over the last couple of years. It, it was a very interesting step to see the minority leader in the Senate team up with the former attorney general to do this. Yeah, and the, the, Rob McKenna, not only I mean the former attorney general, but he's one of the lead attorneys fighting this Seattle income tax that was heard in the Court of Appeals earlier this month. So what they were, we've talked about this before, but what you saw McKenna and Senator Schussler team up to, to talk about is the fact that this entire effort, whether it's the Seattle income tax, it's the capital gains tax proposal, you, you keep hearing about these other efforts across the state. It's just to bypass the voters because the voters have been very clear on 10 occasions that they do not want a state income tax. So what you're seeing now are these efforts to try to bypass them through the courts and see if the judges will allow an income tax. So it was a great op-ed piece by the two of them laying out very clearly what the danger is. And, you know, we're going to see, and we were just talking about the dynamics changing in the legislature and what that might mean for next session, which is an election year. They may bring that capital gains tax back next year. So we're going to need to be prepared for that and educate once again why this is the road toward the income tax. One of the things that we have heard coming out of the Supreme Court of the land, we've heard a lot of talk about precedent. And we've heard some talk about precedent and there being good decisions based on it and bad decisions based on it. And that you can't always rely on precedent, especially if it was based on a bad decision. The Washington State Supreme Court is going to have to look at that when it comes to this income tax thing, because eventually it's going to get there. We're talking almost 100 years of precedent here that has been reinforced over and over and over again. We know that there are cases that the Supreme Court has heard in this past session to where they have looked at 85 years of precedent and said, this is okay. And then they've looked at where it's been 30 years of precedent and said, no, this was a bad decision in the first place. Will the Washington State Supreme Court really throw away 100 years of precedent on ideology? You never want to guess what a court's going to do. I never saw the Roberts courts allowing the Obamacare to go through. But there's two things that give me some peace of mind on this particular issue. This will not, as you had mentioned, be the first time the court will have revisited this. We have rulings as recently as the 2000s reinforcing this interpretation. You have a, a ruling from the state Supreme Court in 1960. It was one page. It just said, stop asking us. Amend the Constitution if you want an income tax. So the fact you have those prior reaffirmations from the court combined with the fact the voters, since the Supreme Court has declared this precedent, have rejected six constitutional amendments. It's not like you have this out-of-control court and there's been no recourse from the voters. The voters have said six times, no, we're fine, thank you, we do not want an income tax. If they were to overturn the precedent in the face of those two facts, that would be so radical that I'm not sure judges who want to stand for re-election would want to go down that road, because they are all, all elected. Right. But you, you never want, you never know, and that's a risk you don't want to take. We've just seen so many activist decisions come out of the state Supreme Court that, I mean, to me, it's a coin flip. I, 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 it really is. And, it, and, it, and if we go down that road, we have lost the last advantage we have. We truly have lost the last advantage we have. Jason Mercier, Washington Policy Center. It's always a pleasure to have you in, sir. Thanks for having me today. Always, always. Coming up, debates last night. We'll talk about the winners and losers. Uh, I think the winner was whoever had the hot mic. We'll talk about that because, oh boy.
Wow. Not to mention the decisions coming down from the Supreme Court. One, not surprising. The other one, a little surprising, but still not a final decision. We'll discuss it when we get back. Bottom line, News Radio 610 K on A Hour 2 coming up.